Hi everyone and thanks for listening to ProPrac. We have a special live recording to share with you this week. This recording was made at ACCA on the 17th of July 2019 for the panel discussion on being an artist putting yourself out there in conjunction with their exhibition on vulnerability and doubt. Our panellists were Kevin Chin, Jesse Scott and Charlie Sofo. We would like to thank the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art for providing this platform for us to discuss issues artists face. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Australian Centre of Contemporary Art and to our panel discussion on being an artist putting yourself out there, which will examine self-doubt, imposter syndrome and the complexities artists face around putting themselves and their work on display, as well as maintaining a creative practice in the face of these vulnerabilities. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge the Boon the traditional owners and sovereign custodians of the land upon which we meet, along with the Wurundjeri and all members of the Kulin Nation, and we extend our respects to Elders past and present and to all First Nations people who join us this evening. I'm Nicole Breeden and I'm joined by Kira Brukurek and we are artists and the creators of the podcast ProPrac, which explores the professional practice of artists. Tonight we're joined by artist Charlie Sofo, whose work is featured in the current show here at ACCA on vulnerability and doubt, and artists Kevin Shin and Jesse Scott. Kira is an artist working in the field of performance and is concerned with performance as a means for transformation. Her practice is also concerned with current modes of the presentation and archiving of performance art. Nicole Breeden's practice uses traditional art making processes and materials to examine nostalgia, queerness, mental illness and neurodiversity alongside woo-woo and manifestation and aspirational living culture. Nicole works as a freelance fine art and audiovisual installer. We create ProPrac together and we created it at the beginning of this year because we perceived a gap in the discourse in our community about how artists live and work and how we can sustain our practices. So tonight's proceedings, um, the discussion will run for an hour. We'll be discussing a range of subjects on the theme on vulnerability and doubt. And we'll have about 15 minutes at the end for questions and for more informal discussion. Um, so we'd like to also introduce all our panellists. Um, Charlie Sofo is a Melbourne-based artist who works across video, installation, drawing and text. Charlie has exhibited nationally in various solo and group projects. He's a doctoral candidate at Monash University School of Art and Design, where he also currently teaches, and he's also the, on the board of Artery, a studio cooperative in Northcote. Kevin Chin's paintings assemble fragments from across continents to test how unprecedented transnational flows shape our place in the world. He examines post-nationalism, advocating for social inclusiveness. Chin has exhibited widely around Australia as well as solo exhibitions in Japan, Singapore and the USA. Kevin Chin is represented by This Is No Fantasy in Melbourne and Martin Brown Contemporary in Sydney. Jessie Scott is a practicing video artist, writer, programmer and producer who works across the spectrum of screen culture in Melbourne. She's currently completing a practice-led PhD with the support of the Vice-Chancellor's Scholarship at RMIT. She has two daughters, aged four and one, and recently presented the report Culture of Silence, Arts, Parents, Accepting, Rejecting or Adapting to an Unfriendly Workplace, along with Nina Ross and Lizzie Sampson at the Women, Art and Feminism in Australia since 1970 conference in Melbourne. All right. Um, we just wanted to start tonight by doing a little experiment in the room. Um, who here tonight is an artist? Put your hand up. 
Okay. Um, who in the room is an arts worker? Um, who is both? Okay. Who is neither? All right, cool. Um, now, can everyone please close your eyes um, and put your hand up in the air? If you have ever experienced imposter syndrome, put your hand down. All right, um, for those with your hands in the air, keep them up. If you have ever been asked to work for free at your own personal expense and for the benefit of another organisation, put your hand down. All right, keep them up if they're up. Um, and if you ever felt you couldn't say no or voice your opinion on something you thought was wrong in a project you were involved in with the fear of being blacklisted, put your hand down. If you still have your hands up, you can pop your hands down now. All right, um, I think there was one person left with their hand up, which is uh, pretty, pretty extraordinary. Um, so, to all of our panellists, um, this feeling of imposter syndrome or feeling as if you are not valid or you don't have permission to occupy space or put your work out there, it seems to be a feeling that many people identify with across most artistic practices. Along with Australia's culture of playing down success and tall poppy syndrome, does anybody on the panel have any strategies that they've used to overcome this sense of imposter syndrome? Yeah, shortly after I graduated, I did a string of four solo exhibitions and um, artist-run and public spaces over three years. And um, one of my peers and classmates asked me, um, gee, Kevin, how did you get all these shows? And I was like, well, I applied for them. Like, what do you mean? And only later did I realise that what she was really saying to me was, Kevin, you don't deserve to get all these shows. Wow. Um, so, in terms of, um, I do think it's a very Australian thing. Um, in terms of strategies, like, well, first of all, I think that that imposter syndrome can be very internalised, but it can come from external sources as well. So, in terms of strategies to deal with it, I've, what I found for myself is that um, spending some time overseas actually um, made me realise that it is quite an Australian kind of um, cultural aspect. And so I would recommend if you can um, do a residencies overseas or even if you don't have the resources to do that, if you can speak to people, the artists who are coming from a different experience when they're uh, doing residencies here, then it just sort of helps broaden your context. And I think that helps. Kevin was actually in our first season of ProPrac and you kind of spoke at that time about coming to... VCA and kind of finding your people but at the same time having come from a culturally and linguistically diverse background you couldn't really see any role models within the community well a lot of role models within the community uh, you've already kind of addressed some of these things but if you might don't mind touching on this kind of um, duality of at one time coming into a community that's accepting but at the same time not seeing yourself represented. Sure. Um, yeah, definitely at the time when I came through art school, there was a real shortage of um, people of colour that were first or second generation migrants that were established artists that I felt I could sort of emulate their trajectory. Um, so thematically, the things that I was interested in my work were really daggy, like I was interested in issues of like how you make a home for yourself and how you create a sense of belonging and um, that just, you know, things that were connected to my migrant experience and that just was, I mean at the time people were more interested in things like 
surface and you know, <laughs> enfolding architecture, and so it just wasn't cool. And I think um, more so what I really struggled with was that not knowing um, how, where to put my ethnicity, like how to address it. Like, should it be addressed in the work? Um, should I put it in artist statements, um, you know, and in applications? Because really that was the first thing that everyone wanted to know about me was like, where are you from? Like, how long have you been here? So, and I didn't really feel like I had any mentor figures to really help me navigate that. So I had to kind of figure that out on my own. Um, and in terms of, well, vulnerability and doubt, I think that's really was a big source of where that came from for me. Um, I think uh, in terms of the community, I think, uh, well, actually initially, I, um, the way I dealt with it was just I didn't address it at all. I just sort of pretended like I was like everybody else. Because I was kind of embarrassed because most of my classmates were mostly white, most of my teachers were mostly white. I didn't want to feel like I was different to anyone else. Um, and then the further I went along, the more I realised that I actually had a responsibility to speak about race-related issues because there's not many um, of us working in the, you know, art scene in Australia that really can. So, um, and especially with the socio-political context that we find ourselves in at the moment with really divisive politics, I really felt a responsibility to not only address it in my work but also speak about these issues a bit more, um, which has been quite difficult for me because I don't feel like there's been really any precedent in Australia, so I feel like I'm constantly trying to work it out for myself. Um, I do feel like there is a younger, a newer generation of artists now, a groundswell, who are addressing these themes. Like, I really loved um, Eugenia Lim's work in The National at the MCA this year. I really love what Kea Boot is doing at the moment. Um, so I feel like there is, a, in talking about community, there's, there is a, a you know, a, a new community forming within the broader arts community. And we may not be besties, like we may not know each other super well, but um, you can at least support each other, even if it's from a distance. Thank you. Um, Charlie, in a discussion that we were having before tonight, you talked about the complexities and contradictions of living and working within a settler colonial state and how to navigate your artistic practice whilst living within this context. Um, maybe just following on from Kevin's, how have you kind of navigated um, your practice in this state that we're in currently? Thank you. Um, I think uh, in terms of that conversation, what I was sort of trying to describe was maybe um, the kind of uh, envelope uh, or the context for not just me, my practice, but actually this talk, you know, ACA, this show. And sometimes it's quite important to name <laughs> the thing that you um, are kind of uh, grappling with or that we're grappling with. And so um, the settler colonial, and I think capitalism is probably the third word that should come into that, I think is, the, is the, uh, a useful way to describe it. Um, I think, you know, Kevin pointed out pretty accurately exactly where imposter syndrome sort of fits within that. It's a structural issue. It uh, has a lot to do with um, uh, uh, people who don't feel included in, in the system um, uh, entering that system and um, uh, trying to navigate their way uh, through it. Um, but I suppose, like, you know, the way I think about it is that it's like, um, think about the kind of the current situation is it's like, it's sort of, um, 
you know, about this sort of distribution of precarity um, and how that kind of uh, um, affects people in different ways. It's not sort of this kind of perfectly symmetrical effect where everyone is sort of um, <laughs> affected um, by it in the same way. So I would say that, like, you know, as we talk tonight, we can maybe anchor some of the things that we're saying about our personal experiences uh, to other kinds of ways of thinking through things politically <laughs> too, so we can kind of enrich it <laughs> with a, a kind of meta uh, discourse about it. Yeah, so that was pretty much my rationale for that. So I'm going to move on to our next subject, um, which is overcoming personal challenges in the public sphere. There are many challenges that we must overcome as artists to continue practising, and many of these lie within the threshold between personal and the public realm. There are personal issues like physical and mental health and the understanding and navigating our identities, which we must reconcile in the public realm in order to be practising artists, and many issues in the public realm in which we must personally reconcile in our personal spheres, such as financial and employment, inequality and discrimination. I'm just wondering if anyone would like to speak to this about having personal matters on display within your artwork and the sense of vulnerability that comes with that. I can speak to that a little bit because um, for the first time ever, I, after I had my first daughter, um, I made work about myself. And uh, when I was doing my undergrad, when I was doing art school, it was really... Uh, encouraged not to do that in all kinds of implicit and explicit ways, um, which I look back on now and I read that as a very, you know, sexist, actually, um, tendency in the arts to kind of uh, uh, sort of imply that personal work is too sentimental or it's too, uh, you're too close to it or something, which of course cuts out the narratives of a whole lot of people who are not part of the central um, paradigm. but. Uh, yeah, so I still feel really weird about that work that I made. I made some works after I had my daughter Genevieve um, that were about the first year after I had her and I kept a diary of every situation where I experienced some kind of frustration or difficulty or embarrassment or awkwardness or, you know, um, anguish over this pull between parenting and making art and then I kind of condensed it and turned it into a, a PDF artwork essentially. And when I look back on it now I have this real sense of ambivalence and um, almost embarrassment that maybe my struggle is not important or my experience is not important enough um, to warrant putting it out there in the public realm and um, maybe part of that is that you know, I've now got two kids and the things that I was worried about then seem so, you know, I'm really battle-hardened now <laughs> um, down the track. Babies just seem like really easy compared to toddlers. Um, but I also think there is like that little voice in the back of my head that, you know, says this is not important. And I just kind of push through it, you know, and I have pushed through it and I keep putting that work out there. It's not the main part of my practice, but I keep, I keep doing it because I think... Um, you know, maybe it'll encourage other people. We need that story in, as part of, you know, our collective narrative. I'm just wondering as well, um, this came up in a previous conversation. It was also something that Pip Wallace pointed out at um, a Westspace talk last, well, two weeks ago. As we were kind of coming up in our careers, we were making work about feminism. There were shows about feminism, but no one was labelling it feminism or you weren't allowed to 
use the word feminism. I'm just wondering, having come through the Melbourne art world at that time, where that was kind of not cool, if that has like affected the way that you now feel about them creating this work that is highly political and personal at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, this is something I teach as well. So, I mean, still, even now, I, I students tell me that they've been told not to talk about themselves in their work and not to talk about feminism. You'll get pigeonholed, you know. That, that all the things that I was told, you know, nearly over ten years ago now. Um, and I always tell them, no, of course, you absolutely have an absolute right to put yourself in your work, to talk about your experience. It's a political right, it's a human right. The art should be about whatever the hell you want it to be about. You know, it doesn't mean you can't be critical of what you make. It doesn't mean you can't refine it and distill it and, you know, step back from it. But, um, yeah, I think that's a, it's a, we were all hoodwinked, <laughs> you know, and I feel really resentful of that now, actually. Beyonce didn't get pigeonholed. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's um, I think it's interesting that that feeling that it's not somehow that you're not important enough or something to have that personal aspect in your work. It seems kind of crazy, like when it's kind of critical, really. Um, I'm thinking for myself, like having almost like coming from a, the opposite direction, where I'm almost not given a choice that people always read because of my appearance oh. and because of my surname. People always read the personal into my work, like people are always reading everything I do, it's like, this is a Chinese painting, this is a Chinese painting. I'm like, um, I've never actually put directly Chinese subject matter into any of my work before, but um, people are always like, oh, look at that Chinese bucket. I'm like, it's a bucket, how is this a Chinese bucket? Um, but I think more recently, I've, I, I guess I've struggled with like, how do you, like if denial is on one end of the spectrum and, um, owning it is on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, I've sort of struggled with working out where, you know, I, I can sit, but I guess in the last few years, I've made a conscious effort to include people of colour as the figures in my paintings, um, and that's largely because I think in the context of Australian painting historically, there's been really sore underrepresentation of people of colour. Um, and so I think... Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a matter of where, how you want, you know, using it, using the personal as a strategy to actually achieve something in your work. As your practice has sort of matured and that you've kind of come to this, uh, you know, really great place in your practice, do you feel like there is a difference for both of you? Um, filling that space now more as like a, somebody who's like maybe more mid-career or like more established as an artist than before when you were maybe more emerging, that you feel more comfortable kind of like occupying that space, that you're being that person that you wished you had as a role model, you know, when you were just sort of starting out? Definitely. I mean, I was, yeah, I was going to say about imposter syndrome that to a certain extent, over time, the more experience you have, the more confident you become and the less, the more focused you become on the things you actually care about and the things that don't really matter and tenfold in terms of having children you just suddenly have no time and so you just really focus on the things that matter and a lot of noise just disappears, yeah, for sure. For myself, it's actually been, it's not about confidence at all, but um, just feeling the responsibility, like that I'm one of the few people that can address some of these issues, so I sort of feel like I kind of have to. I, well, I mean, on a personal level, I guess, uh, uh, anecdotal, um, you know, doing art is 
pretty much humiliating. Like, it's sort of... <laughs> the whole enterprise is just, like, one continuous embarrassment. Um, and uh, it's not that, like, I think that that's a bad thing. It sort of means it's maybe something might be at stake at certain times. Um, and at others, it's sort of, it's sort of not. Um, but someone told me that, like, the kind of the only way through to... Humility is through humiliation in some sort of way. So um, maybe there can be some something salvaged <laughs> uh, from that experience. Um, and maybe in terms of imposter syndrome as well, and I'm only saying this to offer an additional point <laughs> uh, to these kind of structural issues, is that maybe being an imposter is, is better, you know. Like, um, uh, this idea of being authentic is kind of a bit bankrupt. <laughs> you know, what does it mean to be authentic? As if you feel entitled to something, some role or something, you know. I mean, it, it feels as if that maybe uh, there might be more opportunity, more avenues towards uh, um, wriggling, <laughs> you know, through things. As someone who is an imposter, who doesn't, who hasn't already signed up and really believes that um, they're the real thing. So, yeah, anyway. Can I just say that that uh, thing about humiliation is so true and that um, one of the things I think that I've developed is unembarrassability. <laughs> that, you know, to kick off from the Beyonce reference, I my motto is uh, a Jay-Z lyric, treat shame with shamelessness, that you just kind of have to accept that vulnerability in your life and that, and you, you know, jump into it, basically. Given that the vast majority of artists are sole traders and have limited support from an employer to learn required skills of a practicing artist such as public speaking, what techniques or skills have you had to learn to build the resilience required to overcome the doubt and vulnerability of constantly putting yourself up for critique, discrimination and possible failure? My main one is kind of a political position on this. Like, I refuse uh, the label of professional I, I use the word practice, but I refuse the idea that what I am is a practitioner. I am you know, uh, absolutely uh, shamelessly a dilettante. I think that the idea that we are professionals is like a neoliberal construct that we have been encouraged to buy into, but the reality is, is that the industry that we work in, all the pressure is on us to be professionals, the industry that we work in is so unprofessional, so unregulated, so exploitative. It's the Wild West. So I, you know, especially I'm only able to practice really, really, really part-time at this point in my life and I'm not going to pretend that I'm a professional. So I don't put that pressure on myself. I don't pretend that I can live up to that and that has been the best thing for my mental health. <laughs> I think just some advice with regards to um, <coughs> dealing, the resilience with dealing with all the rejection that you get, like inevitably with applying for things and not getting them. Um, <coughs> I think it's helpful to think, because I think as artists we're used to seeing our development process as a series of experiments that don't often work out the way that you want them to. And I think you can see um, your administrative side of your practice similarly that, um, you know, think of, the, for example, the grant applications, think of any unsuccessful grant applications as a learning process or an experiment that didn't quite work out that time, but you always have another chance in your next application to, you know, address, to fix what went wrong and, and to make it better. 
because you always have, that's the thing as well, is that you always have another chance. Like, there's never, like, the end of the road. Like, there's always, if you kind of didn't do a great job that time, that's fine. You, there's always another chance to redeem yourself. Um, yeah, I mean, like, there seems to be a lot of focus on how things are done. Like, you know, we want artists to be professionals and speak very well publicly and uh, not be awkward and <laughs> uh, arrive on time and, and, and whatever. But um, I think, you know, something gets lost is that it seems like something that's important in all this is it's developing something to say as well, like, and letting that being the driver, like, behind your, your presentation. Because uh, I, I, I quite like um, unprofessional <laughs> presentations, <laughs> uh, you know. Um, I don't think, it, and I think a lot of people sort of like that too. So maybe there's a bit of, like, uh, it, it's, it's slightly, I think maybe, um, like, that expectation might be a bit kind of, uh, on some level, um, about an overperformance or this necessity to always uh, uh, be doing too much uh, uh, all the time. Um, yeah, I think that's. Mm. Um, I wanted to address family vulnerabilities. Um, Jesse, I might go to you first because you've already brought this up. Um, that you have two young daughters, age four and one, and you recently completed a report, Culture of Silence arts parents accepting, rejecting or adapting to an unfriendly workplace, along with Nina Ross and Lizzie Sampson. Could you please expand for us um, upon some of the issues that you were, that were identified within the report rega regarding working in the arts once becoming a parent and um, if this kind of decision to do this report was from direct first-hand experience or was it something that um, was observational and then as you became a parent then um, started to experience yourself? Um, yeah, I mean, I was terrified when I got pregnant about what was going to happen to my career, and I think that's, like, a really common thing for people who are artists and, and want to have kids, um, that it takes a long time to decide or to even consider it an option because you know how hard it is to maintain a practice, let alone to add a kid into the mix. And, and my greatest fear, actually, was that I wasn't going to think art was important anymore. Um, and it was the opposite. As soon as I had my baby, I, it was like almost instant, this sense of like, no, of course it's still important and of course I still want to make work and of course I still have ideas. And I was, um, there was, a, I was really lucky that there was a group of um, friends who were artists who were all kind of doing the same thing at the same time and we formed a little bit of a, a kind of a loose collective slash mums group and started doing some collaborations together and that's, it was through that group that the idea for this um, survey came about. Um, in terms of what the findings of the survey were, um, some of it was completely unsurprising. It just validated what we knew anecdotally from our experience and conversations with other artist parents. But um, so yeah, you have less time, <laughs> goes without saying. You're less flexible. Um, you can't attend events as much. Studio practice becomes really difficult. But what was really interesting was drilling down into the flow-on effects of this. And that was where the really surprising or interesting stuff came out in that uh, gallery openings and events and the studio were identified almost universally as like these really important sites for artists of informal and sometimes formal networking. Um, a lot of opportunities came up from casual social engagement and when you can't attend those events or when it's made difficult for you, all of a sudden, a lot of those opportunities are just removed. 
curators forget you exist. They don't, you know, keep asking you, you know, about your work. Um, you, you're not out there telling people about your work as well. You're not having those kind of conversations, that classic conversation, like, what are you working on now, you know? Um, and also residencies are also another, another um, site where, you know, children are not uh, accommodated or welcome. And then what happens is people eventually drop out, you know? They, they might, you know, have a practice, they might modify their practice, make it smaller scale or different venues for it. But it, in, for many people, it becomes too hard to maintain what is expected of an artist to be totally available all the time, to be working, you know, overworking all the time, to be out there being this kind of sole trader who's like a PR machine and a, you know, every, you know admin person and a grant writer and an art maker all at once. And, yeah, I think that um, for me what it really revealed was, was that model. Like, what is that model of ideal practice? And where does that come from? And, in, like, really importantly, who does it actually serve? Because even if you're not a parent, even if you have no interest in having kids, your life will change over time. Things will happen. You might have to look after a sick parent. You might, you know, a partner might be ill or, you know, your financial situation might change. You might get sick. Life changes and... It, it is very wrong that we are living with a model that doesn't, that presupposes that you will always be this perfect worker bee that's totally available all the time. Um, so, yeah, that was what was kind of interesting for me. Thank you. Um, I want to extend this um, discussion about family and vulnerabilities to everyone on the panel except for you, Nicole, because <laughs> you're the only one this doesn't really apply to. But um, the rest of us on the panel are um, either migrants or children of migrants. Um, and I'm wondering if anyone would like to share any experiences about their family's reaction to their decision of becoming an artist, or if this was something that was encouraged or discouraged within the family when you were younger. Yeah, my parents are first-generation Italians. Uh, I think what was good is that they kind of uh, I had some culture growing up. So there was a sense that um, uh, there was this thing. Food was good. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, and, you know, going back to my earlier point, like, you know, if you're, if you're not Aboriginal in this country, you're sort of an uninvited guest here, essentially, a settler or, you know. Um, so in some way, kind of having some direct link and tangible link to what it is, what cultural context you come out of is, is, is really beneficial, kind of anchors you into things. Uh, and my, my family's really generous in that way. Um, I don't feel that it's that significant <laughs> sort of um, uh, personally uh, around uh, coming to be uh, an artist as I'm like the fifth child in a big family and I sort of, you just kind of get left alone. So uh, I don't really, um, there was no kind of mass sort of disciplinary thing coming down on me. I think probably my oldest brother had that. So. <laughs> yeah, um, so my family are of migrant extraction, but probably a few generations further back than um, these guys. And uh, they were people who valued education and culture. Um, so Greek on my dad's side, Irish Catholic on the other. And so I feel like that was a huge privilege, actually, even though, you know, we weren't, uh, we certainly weren't rich and I, you know, didn't come from an affluent background. That has been probably, 
much more of a privilege than anything else. Just the the idea that like, you know, art is valuable and and something worth pursuing. Although my grandparents did want me to pursue science instead, and always used to say, you can do art as a hobby. And so, Doris and George, I just want to say, I am. That's what I'm doing. I'm doing it as a hobby. <laughs> You'll be so proud of me. <laughs> yeah, I think my parents would have probably preferred if I'd been a drug smuggler, because then I'd at least been making some proper money. Um, I have definitely had a tricky um, experience with my migrant background, and it's something that I'd been quite a little embarrassed about at times, and, you know, kind of, um, especially going to art school with everyone else had these perfect white teeth, and I was kind of just, like, just feeling a bit, um, I don't know, less than or something. But um, what I would say to that is that no matter what your family background is, I think with you, no matter, like what, for any negative that you associate with it, I think there's a positive that you can kind of think of it in a different way. Like, for me, um, like, my mum, it's a typical migrant story, I guess, that my mum could, if you give her 50 cents, she'll turn it into $5 by the end of the week. Um, so even though we may, they may not have been able to help me that much financially, um, they gave me the skills, the life skills, that I needed to be able to really function as an artist, because as we know, being able to survive on very little money is actually a really important <laughs> skill as an artist. Um, so, yeah, I think, um, yeah, no matter what, whatever, whatever it is that your family background is, I think you can find, th focus on how it's actually helping you. Yeah, I can definitely identify with what you're saying there, Kevin. I think um, my family's experience, I have had conversations with my mum questioning about why um, she's one of six and creativity is such a strong part of their family. And one, I think it's like holding on to culture when you're being forced to leave your home. And two, it's like about being practical and that like practical skills often lead to creativity because you are working with your hands and you have to do something, you have to fix something and you, you learn those skills and that's kind of what gets passed down as well, is kind of a making and doing. So following on from talking about the financial aspect um, of that question, um, we use ProPrac as a place to share knowledge and ideas with the intention to support each other and build stronger community within the arts. Um, we wanted to ask you all if you have any advice or hot tips, hard lessons learned or general advice on how to be less financially vulnerable in your arts practice. I think um, when I graduated, a lot of my um, classmates went on the NICE scheme. It's a, it was a Centrelink scheme where um, basically if you started your own business, um, which arts is, then you could basically get Centrelink for a year without needing to apply for jobs. Um, so at that time, straight out of school, everyone did had amazing this one amazing year where they had outcomes everywhere, and then you never heard anything from them after that one year. So I would suggest that if Centrelink is part of your financial plan, you need to you need another financial plan because it's just putting yourself into vulnerable a position. So I'd recommend um, if you have any other way to upskill in something other than the arts that you can support yourself with part-time, that's really useful. I mean, for myself, when I graduated, I um, did a four-week course called CELTA, which, allowed, which qualified me to teach English as a second language in private colleges. And that was a job that I managed, that I kept for a few years um, 
I think before that I had been working in retail, like I um, was a checkout chick at Officeworks and I'd also worked at Maya and what I found with that supporting my practice was that it was very hard for me to maintain a morale, like and to maintain my sense of self-confidence. Um, so when I managed to transition to um, uh, this teaching job, um, I found that not only was the income better, like a part-time income, that was better, that really helped a lot, but just feeling like um, not all uh, not all my eggs were in the artist basket, like that I had something else part going part-time, just helped like, in terms of resilience. Like when I did get those rejections as an artist, it wasn't so much like the whole, my whole world was going to fall apart because I had this other part-time job as well. Get a job that has super, get a job that has leave, get a job that has sick leave and annual leave. Yeah, I worked in retail as well and I actually really loved working in retail but um, you just didn't earn enough per hour. Like you had to work so much and it was so vulnerable um, that I ended up doing... I worked a little bit in arts admin for a little while and then I realised I could earn so much more doing essentially the same work in a different industry. And so that's what I did. I ended up working in um, research admin and that's what I've done for the last 10 years essentially. Um, at a university, and it's not the highest paying job in the world, but in terms of conditions, it's it's supported my practice, basically. I, I have self-financed most of my work. Um, kind of in contrary to what you're saying, um, when I became a freelance art installer or AV installer, it actually gave me a lot of the... Um, the skills to negotiate my practice a lot better and pushing back and trying to get, you know, paid more for things or just, you know, understanding when an opportunity isn't actually very good for you financially. So, yeah, freelancing can, you know, sometimes be a, a good opportunity. Charlie, I'm wondering if you could speak for a moment about um, what um, your experience of navigating spaces between the university sector and showing in institutions, as well as kind of on the other end of the spectrum, having a studio at Artery, which is a co-op. Uh, yeah, uh, so I suppose my passage into art has been through kind of, um, yeah, navigating different kind of institutions, but partly also um, <laughs> trying to, uh, in a sense, and in a really critical way, but, um, <laughs> and I, I don't like saying this, but it's like it's almost trying to believe in the ideal of like a public institution. You go through a public university, or you, you know, you show in these public spaces. I used to work in a library, and I suppose earlier on in my 20s, I think the kind of ideology, the thing I was thinking about was how can these spaces be kind of, uh, inclusive spaces that allow, you know, people to dwell and, 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 and whatnot. But, you know, we've seen that they're not, they don't, institutions don't only act in the interests of, like, uh, the public and people who are vulnerable. They're also mechanisms of, you know, power and, and whatever. Um, so, you know, you kind of have to carry contradictory sort of commitments uh, 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 with you um, when you kind of navigate these uh, these spaces. Um, I mean, you know, uh, uh, the the kind of tips around trying to make it as an artist. These are really, really important tips. But if the conditions, which which are kind of austerity, if uh, kind of politically, if this just continues to deepen, then precarity is only going to increase as well. So 
we always have to kind of survive every day <laughs> um, and learn how to support each other, but also think about bigger issues around what you, where we want the kind of uh, uh, what we want our political system to be um, and who we want it to support. Co-ops are just you know they're part of there are other uh, formulations of organising people, which are not profits, and uh, uh, individuals have um, uh, voting rights. There's no sort of uh, in it. It's a kind of democratic kind of organisation. It's just one of the many models of organising things um, that doesn't put the profit motive uh, at the top of the uh, of the equation. So, um, yeah, I think uh, I'm into it. I think it's good. I mean, it's hard, <laughs> but you know, it's worth it. It's really interesting. The first 10 years of my practice was um, working in cooperative collectives. So I was part of a group called 123TV and then Tate Projects for seven years. And then we, me and my friend Eugenia Lim, who you mentioned before, we started a video art festival. And part of that, I think, and probably I no doubt it's the same for you, Charlie, that part of that instinct is that when you see an art world that you don't fit into or doesn't make space for you, there's this kind of instinct to like make the art world you want to exist in. And I think that's really important and that's something that I would, you know, encourage. I mean, I think young people are doing that anyway. I think that they're coming into, you know, um, an environment that has ex been experiencing increasing austerity for the last 15 years. Like every year it gets harder, every year it gets tighter, every year they take away more funding, it gets more competitive. And I think young people are actually uh, not falling into the trap of being sort of, you know, isolated and, and, and just looking after themselves or just in that survival mode and are thinking more collectively, which is really encouraging. Yeah, well, I think you've kind of already given an answer to this final question that I'm going to ask before we hand it over to the floor, but um, does anyone have um, any suggestions or thoughts how artists can support each other to ensure that we're um, thriving in all areas, financially, physically, mentally, um, and keeping ourselves out of such extreme vulnerability so that we are working more collectively? I think, um, like the ProPrac, the podcast, like transparency, being honest with each other, not being afraid to like talk to each other about um, these things and be honest about your financial situation. It used to be terribly gauche to talk about, you know, like you'd be looking at people and thinking, how do they, how do they get by? How do they do that? Like, how, you know. <laughs> so yeah, I think that yeah, this kind of transparency of like opening up those private spaces and talking about what we're all going through is really important to build solidarity. Thank you. Maybe we'll hand that over to the floor. Does anyone have any questions? Um, I just wanted to follow on immediately from that and ask, how often do you find yourself talking about money with other artists? Pretty often now, <laughs> i got to say. I think um, when I was uh, a lot younger, it was the kind of thing that would only open up after a couple of drinks at a bar. And I think um, part of our motivation with making ProPrac was actually to bring a lot of those conversations that people were having, you know, when they've maybe relaxed a little bit and they're, you know, telling each other the truth. Um, out into the opening. Friends. Yeah, with close friends. So we're trying to, you know, open that up. There's a really excellent um, website project by Nina Ross and Gabrielle de Vietri called Arts Log, and it's where people can submit anonymous or identified stories of um, their financial difficulties, um, experiences of exploitation, different 
positive experiences they've had in the arts as well. And that, I think, is a really... I mean, you read it, it's just like, oh, my God, you know, like it's a fantastic read, but it's also just a fantastic initiative to demystify those things and, yeah. I actually had more of a comment, really, than a question, but around the same point of solidarity and openness, um, I think that we actually need to support each other in much more uh, visceral ways than simply saying we act in solidarity. So, for instance, an arts festival I was working on, uh, working with, working for, a few years ago I realised that they weren't planning to pay me and um, kicked up a public stink about it, um, since been blacklisted, which is fine. Um, but I've just found out in the last couple of years that there's a number of artists who were not paid for their work, who were told at the beginning that they would be. Um, so if people had actually stood up at that point and said, hey, you know what, it's not cool that you're not paying one or two people, um, none of us are going to work for you, um, then there wouldn't have been an arts festival and there wouldn't have been a whole lot of money going into someone's hand and a bunch of other people unpaid at the end of that. Um, so actually being brave enough to stand up in solidarity, I think, is really important. Mm. I totally agree. And creating space and support for people to be able to stand up and feel... Can, like that they if they stand up that they're not going like, to be blacklisted and fall off the face of the earth because of it that they have a community behind them um, and that can, it's so scary to speak up um, it's also really scary when you're dealing with arts organizations that uh, for funding or whatever and all you've got is one person at the end of the phone to talk to and you don't know who's on those boards and who's um, it's really hard so I think, I don't know if there's one way, but I think making sure that you can create a support network for yourself, um, whether that be close friends in the arts or outside of the arts to support you, but also, um, I, yeah, I think it's everyone's responsibility to make sure people are protected. It would help if we had a union. Yes. You know, yes. this is a union. constant conversation we have. A union would be vital. Yeah. yeah. There are people, I mean, I know that there are, uh, there is, there are people who are looking into that and who want to do that and it's not, they are, are butting up against a lot of resistance um, in, from certain quarters, but it is, you know, it, it, we're unrepresented. We're just having to, like, as individuals, deal with these massively more powerful institutions than us and that is unfair. <laughs> Thanks. I'm just interested in what, uh, in, like, gaming out what you think a union structure would look like in the current terrain that you're working in, in terms of it not being a sector that has sort of regular standards of, um, of pay or conditions or there's so much irregularity across it. Look, I really appreciate the work that NAVA's done in terms of setting um, fees uh, and standards, um, but they have no way of enforcing them. And part of the problem is that, you know, they're kind of a fake union and you can't represent the bosses and the workers at the same time. So I think we need... And you also can't do it when you just have an office, you know, on Sandwich Wharf in Woolloomooloo. Like, you need an office in every state, in every city. Um, and I think it possibly needs to be more artists representing themselves and our interests and our needs. Like, it needs to be driven by our... by collective action, basically. But we're all used to working as in, in silos, you know, like, and that's why these sharing platforms are really important because 
they break the tension, they break the stigma of talking about these things and that's where you can start to build consensus. Thanks. Um, I was just wondering if, um, I mean, this could be directed at any of you, but maybe you first, Charlie. Um, on um, the idea of doubt and making anything at all, I guess, um, you know, having doubts about even being an artist or contributing or making, you know, an additional thing, something else that goes in the world, why even bother doing that at all? Um, <laughs> yeah, there's, I think, you know, I, there's a lot of doubt about contemporary art. Like, what is it? And what does it mean? And what does it mean? To, and who, 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 who does it belong to? And who belongs to it? Sort of thing. So, it's already like racked with doubt. It doesn't have any. The whole space of it is kind of, uh, 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 con you know, up for debate. <laughs> really, people aren't even sure if it means anything. Like, um, so that's the environment <laughs> already. So, like, doubt permeates it. Uh, how do you make something? Is it? Does that I guess what I'm asking is, you know, like, what, why, uh, you know, you have that doubt about, like, making something or being an artist or feeling guilty even being an artist. Like, why spend the time in the studio as opposed to, you know, working at a charity or something? <laughs> a lot of artists do. I was going to say, in terms of, to supplement that, uh, the comment about unions, artists don't just make art. They work in other areas and they're part of other unions. So any artist union, and there have been attempts... Um, at different stages, and yeah, they do fall down because this kind of art community is not this cohesive sort of thing. Um, but if there is to be one, it needs to work how other unions work, which is by interfacing with other sorts of, you know, creating those solidarities that you talked about. Um, so the answer is do, do everything, do both. I mean, we want art to work hard. Like, we want it to do lots of things. <laughs> um, and you know, it's really great if it can just do one thing, like sometimes, because sometimes it doesn't feel like it does anything <laughs> too. So, you know, like, we don't have to pack everything uh, into it. We don't have to show everything in, you know, like, there's a lot of work to be done kind of, you know, politically and socially and whatever. Um, so I would say, I don't, I don't see those things in conflict. Um, I don't think they need to be at odds with each other uh, working in an organisation and being us. Does anyone else have any <laughs> thoughts about that? Just don't go down that hole. <laughs> don't. <laughs> I think it's been like a central conflict of my practice, my, the whole time I've been practising as an artist, that I uh, have never felt like I'm really good at it and that almost drives me to do it. Um, and I feel like I, I have a friend who, who has asked me numerous times over the years, like, if you were like on a desert island and you were the last person alive, would you still make art? Like, if there was no one to see it and no audience. And my answer has always been, like, yeah, because you don't really... Like, you're driven somewhere inside you to do it. Like, there is something ineffable about that, and that's not rational. And even, you know, being an artist for 15 years and thinking I'm not very good at it and not having much objective success at it either, I'm still doing it. Like, what's wrong with me? I don't know. <laughs> There's something just essentially not rational about it. Um, I think that question of, like, um, putting something out there, making something, like, why are you putting something in a space, like, it has actually been something that 
has dictated the materials that I use within and the fact that I work within performance to create immaterial work so that I'm not contributing more stuff into the world. So it's been like a core question for me to ask about who am I to put something else, create something else, another product into the world, essentially. Um, so, yeah, I think it's important to ask that question, but it's also, I think, important to not get, yeah, <laughs> too distracted by it, too. I could just add that, um, in terms of doubt, well, I genuinely wholeheartedly believe in the ability of art to affect social change. And that's enough for me. Do we have any other questions? Hi. Um, I was just reflecting on uh, like Hannah Gadsby's Nanette uh, screening and she makes the comment that, um, you know, the reason Vince Van Gogh wasn't successful was because he had mental illness and was shit at networking. And, and I think, it's like, I work with Arts Access Victoria and um, Victorian Mental Illness Awareness Council and, um, and support students with disabilities at TAFEs and stuff to complete their studies. And, um, yeah, there, there's, like, vulnerability and doubt is definitely on a spectrum, you know? And, and there's, like, a lot of practitioners in, in the arts field that, uh, yeah, like, definitely don't have a lot of self-confidence, don't have a lot of um, sense of not, not having their worth and value as an arts maker recognised depending on circumstance and um, marginalisation and stuff and what responsibility, I guess, the kind of mainstream, economically viable arts community has in kind of like creating pathways for those people that are yeah, like maybe got diagnosed with a severe mental illness and found it hard to do a tertiary study in fine arts or something. And, and yeah, what, what mechanisms are in place to include those practitioners in, uh, in the Australian arts scene? I think the um, research that I did around parenting in the arts made me very aware of, like, okay, so, you know, it was about essentially the experience I could relate to of being a parent, but it, it revealed so many things like, I mean, so many galleries are in spaces that are inaccessible, just to, to begin with. So many um, events are, 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 you know, at, the, at really like rigid times, um, opening hours are at really rigid times, uh, install protocols are really rigid. They really presuppose like a particular norm and anyone who falls outside of that norm is just invisible, you know? Like, that's what, I, that's what it really brought home to me. And I feel incredibly grateful for all the work um, that uh, artists of colour, artists with disabilities, artists from, um, you know, the queer community, LGBTIQ community, who have um, created a dialogue around these things that enabled me to talk about my experience. Like, I feel like um, that no one would be listening to what I have to say if, the, if that work hadn't been, if those activists and artists hadn't already been kind of like pushing for years and years to, to be heard. Um, and there is a lot, there is a lot of work that galleries need to do um, to, to make 
their spaces and processes and opportunities more accessible. That's all I can say to that. Yeah, I agree 100% um, about creating spaces, um, openings that are more accessible. Um, also, the interface in terms of approaching a gallery in any way can be incredibly intimidating. Um, and I think there's a lot of caretaking that institutions should be aware of and that they have the responsibility to do um, to create a space for people to come to to do work, essentially. People are artists and they work, and why are they not being catered for? Um, they're there to work, they're showing up, those spaces aren't. I just wanted to ask about community. Um, you've both, you've all touched on it at some, with some relevance. Um, online versus offline, you know, in real life, how have you found each of those aspects in your artistic practices? Just say, because um, I'm a bit of a recluse, like I'm not particularly outgoing. <laughs> so um, for me, in terms of connecting to the community, I actually really hate social media, I have to say, because I feel like it's just yet another administrative thing that I have to do. But in some ways, it has actually been quite useful in tapping into community. And what I was saying before about, you know, connecting with artists that you don't necessarily know or might be regional or interstate. And, um, but actually being able to just say, hey, really love what you're doing, you know, pat on the back type of thing, I think is kind of really helpful and kind of really nice. Yeah, I suppose um, those uh, resources that Jesse was just talking about is art blog. Arts log, um, you know, things like that online help us to create communities by having some level of um, anonymity and being able to discuss financial situations that we've been or vulnerabilities that you know institutions have put us in or you know whatever it is. Being having a layer of um, you know anonymity is is really helpful in those situations because you know. Um, like the person in the front there said before, it's, it's really challenging to speak up when you're only representing yourself and when a lot of other people can actually give a story about one particular bad, you know, um, institution or organisation or person or whoever it is, if those start kind of like adding up, people can start to, you know, know that that's maybe not a great place to hang out. It's definitely been a lifeline for me since having children and... Um, I, there's like several friends in the art world who I basically only converse with through Instagram, you know, um, direct messages. <laughs> but I'm so grateful to have that channel, you know, like I'm so grateful to still be able to communicate. Um, yeah, I mean, it's never the same as in real life and things can be miscommunicated online or misrepresented. There's a lot of kind of like lifestyle... Um, not bragging, but just kind of like people, you know, curating the, their image online that can actually cause stress, you know, if you're not able to participate in those things. Um, but, yeah, it, it, pluses and minuses, I would say. Yeah, last one. They say that you're your own worst critic, so I was wondering how you guys develop a healthy process of self-critique and how you guys, like, face your own inadequacies, whether it goes with like the ideas you produce behind your work or the actual abilities of like making stuff and like thinking that what you've made is of value or in a sense of value to yourself at least? Uh, two things. Um, one, I think I got to a stage where 
I just let my practice be my practice and realise it isn't me and that my practice is going to keep evolving and changing and I can have input to it but essentially at the end of the day my practice is not who I am and my practice is not me. So once I could make that definition of a divide between us, I could trust my practice and know that I can show up to work each day in the studio and it will come and meet me there and I will then, you know, it will show up too. Um, once I trusted that, then it, there was so much anxiety lifted off me. Um, but at the same time, when we, we created this podcast, I was freaking out and I'm still freaking out every time that we put out an episode. Like, that is an, another element of my practice that I haven't yet formed that relationship to. So I think it's, um, you know, time and understanding and maybe one day I will not be so scared of public speaking and putting out podcasts, so who knows? <laughs> I think that anxiety about not being good enough like stopped me from making work a lot when I was younger and now I would rather just make it and not question it and then critique it later. Um, but also like I think it's okay to just come from an assumption that like it's not going to be very good and that or that you're not going to be very good to begin with and critique is an opportunity to learn and to get better and to improve and you should embrace it and learn to disregard the things that you don't really strongly don't think apply and learn to embrace the things that are going to help you and that's just something that you learn over time I think. On a more practical note um, my my practice is is quite um, technically uh, challenging at times and I, I quite often find that you know uh, once I've finished an entire body of work and I exhibit it that it all looks terrible because as you're making something you're actually getting better you're learning how to make it as you're making it so by the time you've finished making it the stuff that like when you started it was worse than when you finished it so quite often everything that I make looks worse <laughs> so you just have to for me it's like it's sort of like okay well when I do it next time it'll be even better and kind of coming to terms with that process that like you know making the work is is the practice you know you're practicing making the work while you're making the work I mean I also just think it's you know making art is trying to make something available to other people like you're trying to make something that's kind of of some use um in some on some level not doesn't have to have mass appeal or whatever. Well, you know, or maybe people might be able to hang a feeling on what, what you're doing. Um, so in that sense, it doesn't have to be about being great or being shit, you know? Like, can it just be something where, like, some act of generosity too, you know, like some, some, some sort of offering um, that you put out and sense out, use as, as a tool to kind of sense whether uh, it might, might be of use um, to someone. Lovely. That's a really nice note to end on, I think. So, um, thanks. yeah, thanks everybody for coming and tonight. And thanks to all our panellists. Um, and thank you to Adrian from ACA for organising tonight as well. So, thanks. thanks.